Listening Dog Media. DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. I want to be a DJ. How do you DJ? And he said to him, Learned how to four and have good taste. And I just went out and spent my entire grant on vinyl. <laughs> but it seemed like it was going to be a good investment to me. I was right. There was a moment there where they kind of, our boys on the telly. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. For me, it's about communication. It's like about, you know, using your, your culture to communicate with people. And, I'm, and I still love turning people on with my culture. And then I get to travel around the world doing this, and they're turning me on with theirs. So it's a two-way thing, you know. And for this episode, a pioneering DJ. You know, the Roxy, for a brief moment in time, was the centre of the UK punk rock universe. And I was providing a reggae soundtrack to that. A musician. But you've also got an older audience that's been created by the culture of music that's between 40 and 60 plus, that are still very much engaged with the now. We haven't become our parents. A filmmaker and director. By the time I'd worked out the logistics of doing things like filming from a boat, it turned to night that was pissing down with rain best luck I could have ever had because it afforded a kind of production values that the money would never have covered. Don Letts, welcome to How to DJ. Hi, thanks for having me. Don, before heading into the box of questions, let's start with you growing up in 60s London. Did you have a happy childhood? Yeah, from what I remember, I'm glad you asked me that question because so much is talked about how tough things were and indeed they were particularly for my parents' generation, who were part of the whole Windrush crew that came over in the 50s to help rebuild the country after the Second World War. And for them, it was very much, you know, a a tough experience. But for us teenagers and young kids growing up, eight, nine, ten, music's cut out there, the reggae's out there, the Tamla Motown's out there, you know, we're into our music and fashion. You know, we did manage to find moments of joy and happiness in amongst this ongoing doom and gloom, you know. Was there always music in your life? Well, you know, people often ask me that question, and I have to say that, you know, my standard answer is, for people of colour around this planet, music isn't something that just the kids do. The kids are listening, your parents are listening, your grandparents are listening. So it's just part of the culture, man. You know, literally part of the culture. I really want to know about where you grew up in London. Can you paint a picture? I grew up in Brixton, and back then it was a collective of misfits that I guess now would be described as a multicultural community, but back then we didn't know about that word. But um, what I remember is that, you know, basically left our own devices, we got on. And it wasn't until the politicians started chipping in that things got a bit weird. Particularly, I'm old enough to remember the whole Enoch Powell Rivers of Blood speech, 1968. And I remember how that sort of polarised the country, but it also polarise the bloody playground. Because before that, you know, I was, oi, let's see, you know, my mate, let's see, and after that, it was you black bastard, go home. There was all the right wing stuff going on, but music kind of was the antidote to all of that. I've got to flag this up. I always got to flag this up because, okay, so Enoch's doing his Rivers of Blood speech, 1968. But that's the same year that Trojan Records was launched. So while he's freaking out all the old white people in time on a tradition, 
At a grassroots level, on the dance floor, on the streets, in the playground, it was the music being released by Trojan Records that kind of united the youth and provided this kind of provided a kind of musical antidote to the political poison of the times. Would you say you were a cool kid at school? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can say that with ease because I've, I've got the pictures to prove it. You've got to understand, you know, when you're, you're a teenager, you know, it was all about music and clothes and girls and that. And I was kind of tubby. I wore glasses. I was fat, four-eyed and black. I had everything against me, right? I wasn't in a football, didn't do beer, didn't do the whole lad thing. So the only way I could attract the opposite sex was um, through being cool. As a teen then, tell me about the music that you got into. What scenes were you into? You know, obviously reggae was just there. And what's funny about the whole reggae, although when I was growing up, you know, it went through the whole rock steady, blue beat, scar thing, landed at reggae in the early 70s. What's funny about that is I just took that for granted because as I said earlier, that was just there. And I only started to really think about it when it started to capture the imagination of my white mates. And this is around the time of Trojan releasing all their hits between 68 and 74. They had records in the charts practically every month, an unprecedented run of Jamaican music. I don't think it's been replicated since then. But it was only then that I was like, oh shit, we got something here. You know, it's not just about the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks and the Who, who I absolutely loved. Because that's the thing, you know, I was, you know, before I was named the Rebel Dread by Ariana of the Slits, God rest her soul. My thing was, I was just honest about what I liked. So I liked, you know, I had bass coming in here in one ear and then I had the kind of rock and roll guitar thing coming in the other ear. Namely, the, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, the Who, all of that. And I guess my taste was a reflection of the duality of what I was, which was this black and British thing, you know. Yeah, my musical taste ref reflected the duality of my existence, which was black and British. And do you think punk changed your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, I think punk's greatest gift was its whole DIY thing, do it yourself. I think... You know, in the 21st century, that's why we're still talking about this goddamn four-letter word. Because it wasn't just the fast guitars and mohawks and safety pins. It was an attitude and spirit that could inform whatever you did. You know, it's often said, you know, when the Clash or the Pistols played anywhere up and down the country, the next day, hundreds of bands would spring up, which is kind of true. But also, a lot of people left those gigs buzzing and informed with this energy, and then they put it into whatever they were doing. So you had punk rock poets, graphic designers, journalists, photographers, filmmakers, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So it was very much a complete subculture, the likes of which I don't think we've seen since in this country. I mean, obviously there's been other genres, but I don't think anything that's been that complete, you know. How did you become such a significant part of punk? Punk did not, you know, start and end in the late 70s. It has a heritage and it has a lineage. If you understand that it is a spirit and an attitude, then you realise it's an ongoing dynamic that I was lucky to be part of. Anyway, 1977, this movement starts to evolve. They've got a look, a sound and an attitude, but no place to play because they were getting a lot of negative reviews in the tabloid press. Again, in time on a tradition. You know, they were the new urban folk devils, man. 
So a friend of mine, a guy called Andrew Tukowski, decided to open the UK's first live punk rock venue, the Roxy, in Covent Garden, and asked me to DJ there. Based on the reaction that he saw I was getting to the music I played in a shop I was running called Acme Attractions. Kind of important in the story, because back in the mid 70s, there was this kind of void for a lot of young people that weren't into what was going on in the mainstream. And these young disaffected youth, let's call them, would be patrolling up and down the King's Road and moving between two shops. My shop, Acme Attractions, which was at one end of the King's Road, and Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren shop, Sex, which was the other end of the King's Road. And they literally, these youth would move between the two. And we're talking about, you know, all these people that would later become known as punk rockers. I guess Malcolm and Vivian shop had a hipper crowd, you know, and their stuff was more expensive. It was more like clothes as art. And I'm not knocking it because I was really, I mean, I had a long association with both of them before punk even came on the scene. But my shop, I guess, signposted the multicultural way London was going. You know, whereas Vivian and Malcolm's thing was more Eurocentric, for want of a better word. This punk scene revolves around essentially these two shops in the beginning, it has to be said. And then the Roxy happens. It's so early in the scene that when I get the DJ gig, there's no British punk records to play. So I play what I like. I'm playing hardcore dub reggae. Lucky for me, punks loved it, man. <laughs> Is that how you met The Clash? Because they loved it. Well, I formed close ties with, you know, The Clash and The Pistols and The Slits and X-Ray Specs and Susie, all of them. Because, you know, The Roxy, for a brief moment in time, was the centre of the UK punk rock universe. And I was providing a reggae soundtrack to that. But I'd actually met most of these characters before because they passed through aforementioned shop Acme Attractions. And they'd be drawn into the shop by the bass lines that were pumping up. It was in the basement of a sort of this place called the Antiquarius that had loads of different stalls in there. And they tucked us away in the basement because I'd be banging out bass and the smell of weed would upset all the other stall holders. But that's initially where we'd start kind of eyeing each other up. You know what I mean? It was like... God, I was going to say a Mexican standoff, but you can't say that in the woke world, can you? God almighty. Anyway, you know what I mean. Did you feel like you were part of something that time, or was it just like regular life in some way? That's an interesting question, because at the time we were just young people trying to do our thing. You know, I believe that every generation needs its own soundtrack. And luckily I had mine. I had the reggae thing going on, you know. But my white mates weren't so lucky, so they set about creating one, which became punk rock. At the time, I think we were just expressing ourselves, man, just trying to get shit off our chest. I don't know if we really had dreams about changing the world. I mean, we were happy with changing the guy next door. Good start, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And I think fundamentally what we were doing was turning each other on through our respective cultures. That's what it was about. It's about music as a tool for social change as well. You've always been very keen to point out that you are not a DJ, but a selector. There's a big distinction for you, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, you know, within the whole DJ fraternity, if you understand the heritage, I mean, it started off with selectors because people only had one deck. And then the whole thing of being a DJ. Now, in Jamaica, I've got to point this out to everybody. In Jamaica, the term DJ means a man on the mic, not the person on the decks. 
And the whole reason that the kind of chatting on the mic thing started is that in between changing the record, you want to keep the vibe going. So the guys developed this technique called DJing or MCing or later on rapping, which is very punk rock, you know, is a create, you know, something that was creating a positive out of a negative. You know what I mean? That's punk rock right there. Within a reggae sound system, you've got your operator, your DJ on the mic, and you have your selector, the guy that chooses the tune. And the operator is the one that actually operates the decks. So I'm what you call an old school selector. I'm not a turntablist. You know, I barely, no, I do seg records and I rewind occasionally, but beat matching and all that stuff, that's not really my thing. My thing, you know, for me, it's all about taste. Lucky I got some. Do you think it's about showmanship too? For some people, it's that, you know, for Norman and others, God bless them, you know, they've got that whole thing going. Me, it ain't, for me, it ain't about me. It ain't about, it's about just the music. And I wish people wouldn't look at me. I wish they'd look at each other because that's what I'm doing. I'm looking at them and getting my buzz. You know, I react from the crowd. You're obviously reading the crowd to seeing what, you know, what works. And in my world, yeah, basically, if I get the girls dancing, everything else takes care of itself. I would say that you're doing as much now as you've ever done. Well, for me, it's about communication. It's like about, you know, using your, your culture to communicate with people. And, I'm, and I still love turning people on with my culture. And then I get to travel around the world doing this, and they're turning me on with theirs. So it's a two-way thing, you know. What do you love playing most? My set's basically in the, in the tradition and heritage of Jamaican music, which is all about bass. So it's bass-driven. I don't play what I do on the radio show, which is all over the shop. And don't get me wrong, I love that show because I don't have to be reggae don or punk don. I can just be me. And it's the place to be, man. I think if anyone asked me, what, what does Don Les like? I don't think I could answer that question because you go on the show, you play anything from guitars to electronica to dub to all over the place. I'm just honest about what I like. And as I said, I grew up with bass culture coming in this ear and pop culture coming in this. And I'm not ashamed to put my hand up and say, for me, pop is not a dirty word. I grew up you know, in a time when there was a lot of intelligent pop music. And I still love a hook. I still love a melody. And juxtaposed against a great bass line, hard to be. When you started doing the videos for The Clash and Big Audio Dynamite, your band came along. Was it at this point that you realised music was going to be a full-time job? Was it ever going to be anything but music for you? Well, see, you confused me there by putting two words together, music and career. And in my mind, they kind of... All I know is that 15 years old, the first band I ever saw play live was The Who. And it changed my life because... This thing was unfolding. It was like live show, practically. It was a full production rehearsal. I was 15 feet away from the stage. I could see the whites of Keith Moon's eyes, man. And this energy was unfolding in front of me. And I, I knew I wanted to be part of this thing. I didn't necessarily want to be in a band or be a singer or a guitarist. I just knew that whatever this energy was, whatever this buzz was, it was giving me, I wanted to be a part of that. And I think I stepped through the door then, and I've been walking ever since. If it's panned out to be something that people call a career, great. But man, I've just been doing my thing. What was the first video you did for The Clash? London Calling. Tell me about making that video. 
Well, that was interesting because the first video I ever made was for public image. Which, um, it was shot in a studio. And to be honest with you, I was out of my depth because before that I was shooting everything on my Super 8 camera and doing it myself. All of a sudden I'm in a union room with a union crew basically working with 10 white guys I'd never met. And uh, it was a funny experience. And the only depth or weight that video has is because of John and the band's performance. Anyway, next video I'm like, all right, let me get my head around this. Let me step out of the studio and try and make my mark. I'm going to shoot it on location in the daytime by the River Thames. Whoa, did that nearly get me in trouble. By the time I'd worked out the logistics of doing things like filming from a boat, which I didn't realize the Thames as a current and a tide, because I can't even swim, man. Anyway, by the time I got the logistics together, it turned to night and it was pissing down with rain. Best luck I could have ever had, because it afforded a kind of production values that the money would never have covered. So again, it was a classic example of turning a bunch of problems into a major asset because that atmosphere, yeah, I hadn't budgeted for that. And we did definitely didn't have the money. <laughs> Big audio dynamite. That was your own thing. Well, hold up. I was on mixed, on mixed coattails. Oh, really? Oh, come on. I mean, no, Mick, Big audio dynamite. Mick Jones, man, come on. You know, I got to write some songs with a great songwriter. So don't get me wrong. I'm immensely proud. But that was Mick's vision. And I think I helped him realise it. I think you were a very, you were so significantly a part of that uh, that I think Mick would probably bat that back and say Don was uh, equal parts. Well, he, you, you and him can say that. I can't. Otherwise, I'd be a dick, wouldn't I? What it leads me to is asking why the hell has it taken until now for you to release your debut solo album, which is out of sync at the age of, and I think it's okay for me to say this, at the age of 66. Why now, 67, Don? 67, mate. I'm one up on that. I'm 67 and loving it because as I say in the song, Out of Sing, the young ain't what they used to be and neither are the old because music's changed the landscape. And a lot of people are scared to embrace the fact that you have an audience out there that ain't about bopping around and losing your mind at 13, 14, 15. That's there. But you've also got an older audience that's been created by the culture of music that's between 40 and 60 plus that are still very much engaged with the now. We haven't become our parents. You know, rock and roll's done that, man. And I think the business is having a problem realizing the fact, and they shouldn't do really, because if they're, you know, they're about money, man. If, if it's about money, the older ones are the ones that have got it. And the thing is, it's not an either or. The two things obviously complement each other, you know. So, yeah, this record, this record is, what I'm trying to get at is this record is, unashamedly grown up. Okay, I get that from ha having heard it uh, and, and loving it. And I, I love the, the there's some great deep dub and some great guests on it as well. Wayne Coyne, Holly Cook. Yeah, no, and um, Zoe Devlin Love and um, sadly to say the dearly departed Terry Hall. You know, he came and did two songs with me, which he did in, I think, way back in August or something. Yeah, sorry, just talked about that really. Uh, you know, I'm still like everybody out there phased by that. But yeah, no, I've got backup of some good friends and it, they weren't chosen for their names. They were chosen for people that I had a relationship with that obviously I felt were right for the songs. Even, I mean, a lot of people are surprised by my love for Flaming Lips. You know, and wow, I'm so blessed to have Wayne on the record. I cannot believe it. And also David Holmes did a remix of the first single. He did um, a remix of Out of Sync. 
And uh, each one of these things are little blessings to me. You know, if it sells, brilliant. You know, good on your folks. But played a track to Chris Blackwell the other day. <laughs> and I was shocked. Because I remember when he first heard some of my stuff back, way back, BAD. He was like, oh, Don, let's. No, 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 Rasta. Played the out of sync to him. And yeah, he gave me the thumbs up. So, I'm, you know, I'm already really happy, man. You know? What an endorsement, eh? Yeah, no, really. Earlier I said that I think that your impact on on punk and that period um, in retrospect has been, I think, recognised as more and more significant. And, and I think I'm right in saying that. I want to come back, just circle back in on that because I know that at the time you, you were considered a part of punk, but I think your piece of punk history is recognised more now than it was then. Do you think so? Oh, man, I don't think about these things. I mean, that's for journalists and that. I tell you what punk did for me is it made me recognize the punk in myself that existed as part of this ongoing dynamic. You know, I think, you know, the very creation of reggae music was a kind of punk rock moment. Uh, you know, the guys couldn't do all the fancy Eric Clapton guitar stuff, but they could hold a couple of chords and turn a skank into a style. Guys couldn't sing, they turned rapping into an art, art form. Lee Perry's only got two or four track recorders and he creates a, an art form with that, dub. You know, so I think, yeah, them, the whole punk, making them see the punk in me and making me understand that it does have this lineage and tradition that we can all tap into. Yeah, that was, yeah, a major part of the deal for me. DJ. It's time now for your first of five picks from 45 in this record box here. All the questions are on 45, Steve's. Don, I'll dip into the box and pull one out when you say when. When? Who are your DJ heroes? Ugh, I can't believe you stumped me straight away. Oh, man. <laughs> Mongo's High Fives and uh, OBF. OBF out of France. Okay, why? Original ba uh, Bass Foundation, because they got wicked fucking bass lines and they really got this kind of up-tempo move thing going on. It's rooted in sound sound system tradition, but it's moving forward. Yeah, OBF, Original Bass Foundation out of France. Nice. Cool, thank you. Great recommendation. And another question for the box, say when? When? What do you consider to be your finest moments? Oh, Jesus. Well, I hope I, the, the, the standard answer to that is I hope I haven't had it yet. All right, here we go. I'm going to give you three because I'm going to... I, I got the first vinyl copy of Out of Sync today. And I had it, yeah, but, you know, I pulled it out of the sleeve and, you know, smelt it. Job done, mate. Anything after that's going to be repetition. But no, that was a big buzz for the little guy from Brixton that, you know, was part of the vinyl generation. So getting my record out today. But I've also got to flag up two other things I'm really proud of. One of them is Past the Duchy, video I did for Musical Youth. Partially because it was the first black video to be ever shown on MTV, but mostly because it did for my generation, i.e. black and British, the same thing that Millie's My Boy Lollipop did for my parents' generation, in that it gave us this sense of pride and sort of said, we've arrived. So I'm immensely proud of that, Prasadachi. And then the other major thing, the thing I'm most proud of on film would be the movie Dancehall Queen, my first feature film shot in Jamaica, which, 
you know, Jamaica's most famous film is a thing called Harder They Come, starring Jimmy Cliff. This other most famous film is Dancehall Queen, and I can say that easily. You know, the people of, you know, from Jamaica and the Jamaican diaspora, it's a big deal. And for a little kid that's grown up in the UK with Jamaican parentage, yeah, that's a big buzz for me. What do you remember about making that film? Oh, Dancehall Queen. Well, I remember, I'll tell you what I remember. The reason that I picked up a Super 8 camera in the Roxy is because at the age of 14, I saw Jamaica's most famous film, The Harder They Come, in my local cinema. And I remember how I was struck by the power of the film to empower, inform, and entertain. Because this is at a time when, you know, I'm black and I'm British, and I kind of know what we sound like because we've got a soundtrack. But I don't know what we look like because there's no visual imagery. And that changed with the advent of two things, Bob Marley, and this film, A Harder They Come. And after seeing the film, dreamt about being a filmmaker, which back in the early 70s for a young black man, ridiculous idea because it was an old white boys network. Fast forward five years, punk rock explodes with the whole DIY thing. I pick up the camera and reinvent myself as Don Lex, the filmmaker. Hop, skip and a jump and I'm making Dancehall Queen, which in a way is a homage to harder they come. Feels like you've done a lot of living the dream, Don. You know, you know what, Chris, going back to, I was just thinking, you know what I've done? I've lived what I believe in and that's turned out to be a dream. What an amazing thing to say. But all I've ever done is follow my instinct. You know what's funny, mate? So, you know, I don't know if you know, last year I had a book out called There and Black Again. Yes, that was a plug. And then, is that this year? No, last year as well, there's somebody made a film about me called Rebel Dread. And I'm like, I don't get it. I don't understand what all the fuss is about, you know, because for me that I'm not the story. The story is the culture that made me. And all of a sudden I'm in the front seat. But then I had to look at the fact that X amount of people were genuinely interested in what I've done. And that gives my work meaning, you know. So that's got to, I've got to own that. You know, I can't deny that. But as far as I'm concerned, my only discernible talent is that I've got pretty good taste, which apparently in the 21st century is some serious bloody currency. Well, that, you know, really, other than that, I don't get it. I don't get what the fuss is about, you know. Back into the box. Uh, Don, for your third question, say when. When? Have you ever thought about doing something else? What is there left to do? Oh, gosh. I'd have to stop. That would be that'd be doing something, and I couldn't do that, God forbid, because then I'd have to deal with myself. That's another thing I realised through this book and this film, doing all this stuff, is that why do I keep throwing myself into projects? And I realise it's a way of not dealing with anything deep and emotional. So I've kind of turned what would be perceived as a negative into a positive by being creative. You know, I might not be... <laughs> Be a well-adjusted human being, but it kind of works for me. <laughs> Donna, fourth question from the box. Say when. Yeah, when. <laughs> Quick. How much planning goes into your sets? None at all. Oh, no, that's a lie. I usually do think about the first record. At first, maybe the first one or two, and normally I'm gauging what they're up for. But I don't understand these people that turn up with a goddamn playlist. I can't get, I cannot get my head around that. You know, no, you've got to read the crowd, man. It's a feedback thing. It's a live, evolving thing. You never, never know which way it's going to go. You know which way you want it to go. 
you know, and uh, yeah, that works for me. What's your most regular opener, would you say? Lately, it's a tune by OBF. Soundman Session, that has been one of late. Yeah, generally OBF stuff to kick off my sets. What about a, a guaranteed dance floor filler? Well, people are going to say, oh, yeah, somewhat typically a typical dumb. But you know what? I get to DJ around the world. And whenever I'm stuck, Dawn Penn's no, 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 never fails to get me out of a corner. Having said that, though, a nice trio of jungle tunes always does the trick as well. You know, no, no, no is a cover of a 1950s six tune by a dude called Willie Cobbs. You Don't Love Me. It's a cover. As a lot of early Jamaican hits were. Don, a final question from the box now. Question five coming up. You say when? When? Okay, Don, what's the worst decision you've ever made? What a good question. I've done a lot of shit, man. So it'd be churlish for me to have any grudges or any... I mean, you know, really, I mean, I'm not that up my proverbial da 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 to, um, yeah, no. I mean, that's the thing is, because of the book and the film and then being able to, me having to look at what I've done, I'm like, come on, you know. Although enough's never enough, is it? <laughs> Probably something like waiting to be, waiting to get old, to be really honest. Before that, the Don was juggling. But, you, you know, there comes a time when you can own your shit and, uh, Mind you, but even back in the day, you know, I always, I've always called things as I see them. Yeah, maybe just not doing that earlier. But then I would have been like a really precocious five-year-old. <laughs> well, as opposed to a precocious 67-year-old. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, really, you know, really. So that wouldn't have been very endearing, would it? So, but it's somewhere in there is the answer. It's the end of the world, Don, finally, and, and you have to play the last three records on Earth. What would those three records be? Well, I know the last one's going to be um, Do You Realise by uh, Flaming Lips. Oh, God, you can't ask a man with this much musical history. Three, the last three tunes? Something by Marvin Gaye. Which one? Oh, you bastard. I know I can do this, but... I'm going to stop. I'm going to be like, oh, I should have said this, should have said that. Oh, George Harrison, All Things Must Pass. That's two. Uh, Bob Marley, I've got to keep on moving. Perfect. I'm just grabbing at straws here. Don's book, There and Black Again, is a brilliant, compelling read, and The Rebel Dread is available to stream. And Don's debut solo album, Out of Sync, is released at the end of May. Don Letts, thank you so much. And that was How to DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.